Chapter Three of Alan's Wife. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alan's Wife by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Three. Northwards. I make no apology to myself or to anybody who may happen to read this narrative in future, for having set out the manner of my meeting with Indaba Zimbi first because it was curious, and secondly because he takes some hand in the subsequent events. If that old man was a humbug, he was a very clever one. What amount of truth there was in his pretensions to supernatural powers is not for me to determine, though I may have my own opinion on the subject. But there was no mistake as to the extraordinary influence he exercised over his fellow-natives. Also he quite got round my poor father— at first the old gentleman declined to have him at the station, for he had a great horror of these Kaffir wizards, or witch-finders, but Indaba Zimbi persuaded him that he was anxious to investigate the truths of Christianity, and challenged him to a discussion. The argument lasted two years, to the time of my father's death, indeed. At the conclusion of each stage, Indaba Zimbi would remark, in the words of the Roman governor, almost praying white man thou persuadest me to become a christian but he never quite became one indeed i do not think he ever meant to it was to him that my father addressed his letters to a native doubter this work which unfortunately remains in manuscript is full of wise saws and learned instances it ought to be published together with a precy of the doubter's answers which were verbal so the talk went on if my father had lived, I believe it would be going on now, for both the disputants were quite inexhaustible. Meanwhile, Indaba Zimbi was allowed to live on the station, on condition that he practised no witchcraft, which my father firmly believed to be a wile of the devil. He said that he would not, but for all that there was never an ox lost or a sudden death, but he was consulted by those interested. When he had been with us a year, a deputation came to him from the tribe he had left, asking him to return. Things had not gone well with them since he went away, they said, and now the chief, his enemy, was dead. Old Indaba Zimbi listened to them till they had done, and, as he listened, raked sand into a little heap with his toes. Then he spoke, pointing to the little heap. "'There is your tribe to-day,' he said. Then he lifted his heel and stamped the heap flat there is your tribe before three moons are gone nothing is left of it you drove me away i will have no more to do with you but when you are being killed think of my words the messengers went three months afterwards i heard that the whole community had been wiped out by an impi of raiding pondos when i was at length ready to start upon my expedition i went to old indaba zimbi to say good-bye to him and was rather surprised to find him engaged in rolling up medicine, assegais, and other sundries in his blankets. "'Good-bye, Indaba Zimbi,' I said. "'I'm going to trek north.' "'Yes, Makumazahan,' he answered, with his head on one side. "'And so am I. I want to see that country. We will go together.' "'Will we?' I said. "'Wait till you're asked, you old humbug. "'You had better ask me then, Makumazahan, for if you don't you will never come back alive.' now that the old chief my father is gone to where the storms come from and he nodded to the sky i feel myself getting into bad habits again so last night i just threw up the bones and worked out about your journey and i can tell you this that if you don't take me you will die and what is more you will lose one who is dearer to you than life in a strange fashion so just because you gave me that hint a couple of years ago 
I made up my mind to come with you. Don't talk stuff to me, I said. Ah, very well, Macumazahan, very well. But what happened to my own people six months ago, and what did I tell the messengers would happen? They drove me away, and they are gone. If you drive me away, you will soon be gone too. And he nodded his white lock at me and smiled. Now, I was not more superstitious than other people, but somehow old Indaba Zimbi impressed me. Also, I knew his extraordinary influence over every class of native, and bethought me that he might be useful in that way. "'All right,' I said. "'I appoint you witch-finder to the expedition without pay.' First, serve, then ask for wages,' he answered. "'I am glad to see that you have enough imagination not to be altogether a fool, like most white men, Macumazahan.' "'Yes, yes, it is a want of imagination that makes people fools. They won't believe what they can't understand. You can't understand my prophecies any more than a fool at the kraal could understand that I was his master with a lightning. Well, it is time to trek. But if I were you, Macumazahan, I should take one wagon, not two. "'Why?' I said. "'Because you will lose your wagons, and it is better to lose one than two. "'Oh, nonsense!' I said. "'All right, Macumazahan, live and learn.' and without another word he walked to the foremost wagon, put his bundle into it, and climbed on to the front seat. So having bid an affectionate adieu to my white friends, including the old Scotchman who got drunk in honour of the event, and quoted Burns till the tears ran down his face, at length I started and travelled slowly northwards. For the first three weeks nothing very particular befell me. Such Kaffirs as we came into contact with were friendly, and game literally swarmed. Nobody living in those parts of South Africa nowadays can have the remotest idea of what the veldt was like even thirty years ago. Often and often I have crept shivering onto my wagon-box, just as the sun rose and looked out. At first one would see nothing but a vast field of white mist, suffused towards the east by a tremulous golden glow, through which the tops of stony copies stood up like gigantic beacons. From the dense mist would come strange sounds— snorts gruntings bellows and the thunder of countless hoofs presently this great curtain would grow thinner then it would melt as the smoke from a pipe melts into the air and for miles on miles the wide rolling country interspersed with bush opened to the view but it was not tenantless as it is now for as far as the eye could reach it would be literally black with game here to the right might be a herd of wildebeests that could not number less than two thousand. Some were grazing, some gambled, whisking their white tails into the air, while all round the old bulls stood upon hillocks, sniffing suspiciously at the breeze. There in front, a hundred yards away, though to the unpractised eye they looked much closer, because of the dazzling clearness of the atmosphere, was a great herd of springbok trekking along in single file. Ah, they have come back to the wagon-track, and do not like the look of it. What will they do? Go back? Not a bit of it. It is nearly thirty feet wide, but that is nothing to a springbok. See, the first of them bounds into the air like a ball. How beautifully the sunshine gleams upon his golden hide! He has cleared it, and the others come after him in numberless succession, all except the fawns, who cannot jump so far and have to scamper over the doubtful path with a terrified bah. What is that yonder, moving above the tops of the mimosa, in the little dell at the foot of the copy? Giraffes, by George! Three of them! There will be marrow-bones for supper to-night. Hark! The ground shakes behind us, 
and over the brow of the rise rush a vast herd of blesbok. On they come at full gallop, their long heads held low, they look like so many bearded goats. I thought so. Behind them is a pack of wild dogs, their fur draggled, their tongues lolling. They are in full cry, the giraffes hear them and are away, rolling round the copy like a ship in a heavy sea. No marrow bones, after all. See? The foremost dogs are close on a buck. He has galloped far and is outworn. One springs at his flank and misses him. The buck gives a kind of groan, looks wildly round and sees the wagon. He seems to hesitate a moment, then, in his despair, rushes up to it and falls exhausted among the oxen. The dogs pull up some thirty paces away, panting and snarling. Now, boy, the gun. No, not the rifle. The shotgun, loaded with loopers. Bang! Bang! There, my friends, two of you will never hunt buck again. No, don't touch the buck, for he has come to us for shelter, and he shall have it. Ah, how beautiful is nature before man comes to spoil it! Such a sight as this I have seen many a hundred times, and I hope to see it again before I die. The first real adventure that befell me on this particular journey was with elephants, which I will relate because of its curious termination. Just before we crossed the Orange River we came to a stretch of forest land some twenty miles broad. The night we entered this forest we camped in a lovely open glade. A few yards ahead tambuki grass was growing to the height of a man, or rather it had been. Now, with the exception of a few stalks here and there, it was crushed quite flat. It was already dusk when we camped, but after the moon got up I walked from the fire to see how this had happened. One glance was enough for me. A great herd of elephants had evidently passed over the tall grass not many hours before. The sight of their spore rejoiced me exceedingly, for though I had seen wild elephants, at that time I had never shot one. Moreover, the sight of elephant spore to the African hunter is what colour in the pan is to the prospector of gold. It is by the ivory that he lives, and to shoot it or trade it is his chief aim in life. My resolution was soon taken. I would camp the wagons for a while in the forest, and start on horseback after the elephants. I communicated my decision to Indaba Zimbi and the other Kaffirs. The latter were not loath, for your Kaffir loves hunting, which means plenty of meat and congenial occupation, but Indaba Zimbi would express no opinion. I saw him retire to a little fire that he had lit for himself, and go through some mysterious performances with bones and clay mixed with ashes, which were watched with the greatest interest by the other Kaffirs. At length he rose, and, coming forward, informed me that it was all right, and that I did well to go and hunt the elephants, as I should get plenty of ivory, but he advised me to go on foot. I said I should do nothing of the sort, but meant to ride. I am wiser now. This was the first and last time that I ever attempted to hunt elephants on horseback. Accordingly, we started at dawn, I and Dubba Zimbi and three men. The rest I left with the wagons. I was on horseback, and so was my driver, a good rider and a skilful shot for a kaffir, but Indaba Zimbi and the others walked. From dawn till midday we followed the trail of the herd, which was as plain as a high road. Then we off-saddled to let the horses rest and feed, and about three o'clock started on again. Another hour or so passed, and still there was no sign of elephants. Evidently the herd had travelled fast and far, and I began to think that we should have to give it up, 
when suddenly i caught sight of a brown mass moving through the thorn trees on the side of a slope about a quarter of a mile away my heart seemed to jump into my mouth where is the hunter who has not felt like this at the sight of his first elephant i called a halt and then the wind being right we set to work to stalk the bull very quietly i rode down the hither side of the slope till we came to the bottom which was densely covered with bush here i saw the elephants had been feeding for broken branches and upturned trees lay all about i did not take much notice however for all my thoughts were fixed upon the bull i was stalking when suddenly my horse gave a violent start that nearly threw me from the saddle and there came a mighty rush and upheaval of something in front of me i looked there was a hinder part of a second bull elephant not four yards off i could just catch sight of its outstretched ears projecting on either side i had disturbed it sleeping and it was running away obviously the best thing to do would have been to let it run but i was young in those days and foolish and in the excitement of the moment i lifted my roar or elephant gun and fired at the great brute over my horse's head the recoil of the heavy gun nearly knocked me off the horse i recovered myself however and as i did so saw the bull lurch forward for the impact of a three-ounce bullet in the flank will quicken the movement even of an elephant by this time i had realized the folly of the shot and devoutly hoped that the bull would take no further notice of it but he took a different view of the matter pulling himself up in a series of plunges he spun round and came for me with outstretched ears and uplifted trunk screaming terribly i was quite defenceless for my gun was empty and my first thought was of escape i dug my heels into the sides of my horse but he would not move an inch the poor animal was paralysed with terror, and he simply stood still, his forelegs outstretched and quivering all over like a leaf. On rushed the elephant, awful to see. I made one more vain effort to stir the horse. Now the trunk of the great bull swung aloft above my head. A thought flashed through my brain. Quick as light, I rolled from the saddle. By the side of the horse lay a fallen tree as thick through as a man's body. The tree was lifted a little off the ground by the broken boughs which took its weight, and with a single movement, so active is one in such necessities, I flung myself beneath it. As I did so, I heard the trunk of the elephant descend with a mighty thud on the back of my poor horse, and the next instant I was almost in darkness, for the horse, whose back was broken, fell over across the tree under which I lay ensconced. But he did not stop there long in ten seconds more the bull had wound his trunk about my dead nag's neck and with a mighty effort hurled him clear of the tree i wriggled backwards as far as i could towards the roots of the tree for i knew what he was after presently i saw the red tip of the bull's trunk stretching itself towards me if he could manage to hook it round any part of me i was lost but in the position i occupied that was just what he could not do although he knelt down to facilitate his operations. On came the snapping tip like a great open-mouthed snake. It closed upon my hat, which vanished. Again it was thrust down, and a scream of rage was bellowed through it within four inches of my head. Now it seemed to elongate itself. Oh, heavens! Now it had me by the hair, which luckily for myself was not very long then it was my turn to scream for next instant half a square inch of hair was dragged from my scalp by the roots 
I was being plucked alive, as I have seen cruel Kaffir kitchen boys pluck a fowl. The elephant, however, disappointed with these moderate results, changed his tactics. He wound his trunk round the fallen tree and lifted. The tree stirred, but fortunately the broken branches embedded in the spongy soil and some roots which still held prevented it from being turned over, though he lifted it so much that, had it occurred to him, he could now easily have drawn me out with his trunk. Again he hoisted with all his mighty strength, and I saw that the tree was coming and roared aloud for help. Some shots were fired close by in answer, but if they hit the bull their only effect was to stir his energies to more active life. In another few seconds my shelter would be torn away and I should be done for. A cold perspiration burst out over me as I realized that I was lost. Then, of a sudden, I remembered that I had a pistol in my belt, which I often used for dispatching wounded game. It was loaded and capped. By this time the tree was lifted so much that I could easily get my hand down to my middle and draw the pistol from its case. I drew and cocked it. Now the tree was coming over, and there, within three feet of my head, was the great brown trunk of the elephant. I placed the muzzle of the pistol within an inch of it and fired. The result was instantaneous. Down sunk the tree again, giving one of my legs a considerable squeeze, and next instant I heard a crashing sound. The elephant had bolted. By this time, what between fright and struggling, I was pretty well tired. I cannot remember how I got from under the fallen tree, or indeed anything, until I found myself sitting on the ground drinking some peach brandy from a flask, and old Indaba Zimbi opposite to me nodding his white lock sagely while he fired off moral reflections on the narrowness of my escape, and my unwisdom in not having taken his advice to go on foot. That reminded me of my horse. I got up and went to look at it. It was quite dead. The blow of the elephant's trunk had fallen on the saddle, breaking the framework and rendering it useless. I reflected that in another two seconds it would have fallen on me. Then I called to Indaba Zimbi and asked which way the elephants had gone. There he said, pointing down the gully. And we had better go after them, Macumazahan. We have had the bad luck, now for the good. There was philosophy in this, though, to tell the truth. I did not feel particularly sharp-set on elephants at the moment. I seemed to have had enough of them. However, it would never do to show the white feather before the boys, so I assented with much outward readiness, and we started, I on the second horse and the others on foot. When we had travelled for the best part of an hour down the valley, all of a sudden we came upon the whole herd which numbered a little more than eighty. Just in front of them the bush was so thick that they seemed to hesitate about entering it, and the sides of the valley were so rocky and steep at this point that they could not climb them. They saw us at the same moment as we saw them, and inwardly I was filled with fears lest they should take it into their heads to charge back up the gully, but they did not. Trumpeting aloud, they rushed at the thick bush which went down before them like corn before a sickle. I do not think that in all my experiences I have ever heard anything to equal the sound they made as they crashed through and over the shrubs and trees. Before them was a dense forest belt from a hundred to a hundred and fifty feet in width. As they rushed on, it fell so that behind them was nothing but a level roadway strewed with fallen trunks, crushed branches, and here and there a tree too strong even for them, left stranded amid the wreck. On they went, and, notwithstanding the nature of the ground over which they had to travel, they kept their distance ahead of us. 
this sort of thing continued for a mile or more and then i saw that in front of the elephants the valley opened into a space covered with reeds and grass it might have been five or six acres in extent beyond which the valley ran on again the herd reached the edge of this expanse and for a moment pulled up hesitating evidently they mistrusted it my men yelled aloud as only kaffirs can and that settled them headed by the wounded bull whose martial ardour like my own was somewhat cooled they spread out and dashed into the treacherous swamp for such it was though just then there was no water to be seen for a few yards all went well with them though they clearly found it heavy going then suddenly the great bull sank up to his belly in the stiff peaty soil and remained fixed the others mad with fear took no heed of his struggles and trumpetings but plunged on to meet the same fate in five minutes the whole herd of them were hopelessly bogged and the more they struggled to escape the deeper they sunk there was one exception indeed a cow managed to win back to firm shore and lifting her trunk prepared to charge us as we came up but at that moment she heard the scream of her calf and rushed back to its assistance only to be bogged with the others such a scene i never saw before or since the swamp was spotted all over with the large forms of the elephants and the air rang with their screams of rage and terror as they waved their trunks wildly to and fro now and then a monster would make a great effort and drag his mass from its peaty bed only to stick fast again at the next step it was a most pitiable sight though one that gladdened the hearts of my men even the best natives have little compassion for the suffering of animals well the rest was easy the marsh that would not bear the elephants carried our weight well enough before midnight all were dead for we shot them by moonlight i would gladly have spared the young ones and some of the cows but to do so would only have meant leaving them to perish of hunger it was kinder to kill them at once the wounded bull i slew with my own hand and i cannot say that i felt much compunction in so doing he knew me again and made a desperate effort to get at me but i am glad to say that the peat held him fast the pan presented a curious sight when the sun rose next morning owing to the support given by the soil few of the dead elephants had fallen there they stood as though they were asleep I sent back for the wagons, and when they arrived on the morrow, formed a camp about a mile away from the pan. Then began the work of cutting out the elephant's tusks. It took over a week, and for obvious reasons was a disgusting task. Indeed, had it not been for the help of some wandering bushmen who took their pay in elephant meat, I do not think we could ever have managed it. At last it was done. The ivory was far too cumbersome for us to carry so we buried it, having first got rid of our bushman allies. My boys wanted me to go back to the Cape with it and sell it, but I was too much bent on my journey to do this. The tusks lay buried for five years, then I came and dug them up. They were but little harmed. Ultimately I sold the ivory for something over twelve hundred pounds. Not bad pay for one day's shooting. This was how I began my career as an elephant hunter. I have shot many hundreds of them since but have never again attempted to do so on horseback. End of chapter 3